And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Welcome, everybody, and thanks for joining us. We are live from the bunker. It is Monday, October 31st, Halloween. Spooky season is here. Where does the time go? It was almost like it was January yesterday, right? I mean, it's like this year has been flying by. My name is Jason Hyde. I am the editor here at Sci-Fi for Me. Glad to have all of you with us. If you are listening to us on a podcast platform... Uh, We welcome you as well. Good to see all of you, those of you who are listening in Canada and Australia and Germany and South Africa. Good to have all of you with us. And uh, we do invite you to check out the live video every now and again because sometimes we have some pictures that don't exactly translate to, uh, to radio all that well. But today I think we'll be okay because uh, everybody has a mental image of the devil and that's going to be kind of where we get started. We're talking about a new book that's out from Crucifixion Press. It's called Shoot the Devil. It is an anthology of stories about ordinary people uh, fighting... The Forces of Darkness, and joining us today, two of the contributors of that tome, uh, Mr. Declan Finn and Mr. Michael Gallagher, both have been guests on this program before. Welcome back, gentlemen. Thank you very much. So, who wants to give me a basic Reader's Digest rundown of what this book is? Because I, I, the premise uh, is is kind of fun, and I'm reading a, a, a review here over on Critical Blast's website, and it talks uh, about the the style of this book being very much in the vein of the old pulps from the 20s and 30s. And I guess mm-hmm. that's our starting point there. So where, where, where did this book start out and how did it, how did it come about? This book actually started uh, thanks to our editor, Eric Postma. Uh, he's on Twitter as Ginger Man. And uh, he actually was, he, he was reviewing one of my St. Tommy novels and uh, it's, you know, he, he focused on a line from his review where it's, well, if you ever want uh, a book where you, somebody punches the devil in the face, you go to Declan Finn. And he said, wouldn't punching wouldn't punching demons be a great premise for an anthology? And uh, it, my, my response to him was, okay, fine. I'll, I'll wrangle some authors. You, you can edit and have a nice day. And he said, what? <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> So it was Hardy Hi Ho Silver from there. And, uh, you know, I gathered a few authors, a few dropped out, uh, one or two died um, in the amount of time it took to make this anthology. And, uh, you know, many Bothans died during the course of this anthology. Um, I think they also die if you send them on a coffee run. But anyway. Um, and, you know, we, we wound up with a starting kit of, you know, um, Russell Newquist, uh, John C. Wright, his wife. Uh, later on, I'm trying to remember if Nate LaPointe came on. 
earlier or later. Uh, I know, Mike, Michael, you were a later addition uh, by, I think you were top of the list of the sec second string. Um, and it was only second string because, you know, we only wanted so many writers um, for the record. Uh, I am, I had been the editor of a Tuscany Bay anthology focused on planets and I had the moon and uh, I was, after that experience, I was very dead set against having too many authors. And once we had, uh, once we knew John C. Wright was going to be one of our authors, I immediately hit the author cap because, you know, <laughs> you ask John C. Wright for an 8,000 word short story, you get a 24,000 word short story that if you're very lucky, you can cut down to 20,000 words. <laughs> Trust me, I know. Uh, but uh, then it's like, wait, what do you mean John only sent a 6,000 word short story? Is he feeling okay? <laughs> so um, anyway, and that's pretty much how it got started. Uh, we weren't going for, we, we weren't going for specifically a 20s or pulp feel. We were going for a fun feel. Yeah. It was, you know, Yes, we're going to throw down with demons, and the demons aren't going to get back up again. It's it's interesting though because if you're <clears throat> if you're going for a, a fun style and and the the feel of that, and for for people to make that connection to the old time, you know, two fisted action adventure pulps, I think that kind of says something, one, about the kind of stories that you're telling, the fact that they, they resonate in that same way as the stuff from, you know, Robert E. Howard and, you know, the Conan Adventures and Solomon Kane and that kind of, excuse me, that kind of thing. But also the fact that, you know, modern era storytelling is very different from way back when and you know this this book looking at the various different people who are involved in this you know you've got your superversive crew you know the people who are you know, you know the good guys win and there's a little bit of hope at the end and you know the, the a certain particular type of story but it's also a throwback to where all of this started in terms of science fiction and action and adventure stories that you don't get very much anymore yeah, uh, yeah, no, I, I, th I think one of the mo most, um, the key connections uh, that Damascus made in his review in, in comparing this to the lineage of like the Solomon Cain pulps what was probably more along the lines of the um, binary morality that Solomon Cain had in his, um, his, his, his convictions and his single-minded hunt to eradicate evil. Um, and and just you know, uh, his his method of problem solving is to run a sword through it and blast it with a face full of flint. Um, that that I think more than anything is kind of where that <clears throat> is uh, uh, more of an apropos correlation because um, these are for the most part. I, they run the gamut, really. I mean, there's everything in here from comedy to John C. Wright's got a supremely um, subdued and tense story um, that, that features only 
two characters in one room. Um, to uh, Shaggy Lamplighter's story is actually rather funny at uh, various points. Um, but it's all very much in that kind of high adventure arc, really. Yeah. Um, is where it's best connected to Solomon Kane, I think. So how how did you guys go about figuring out what kind of stories that you wanted to tell? Because you've got a very broad premise there, fighting demons, you know, punching demons, shooting demons in the face type of thing. <laughs> Th that can cover a lot. So how do you narrow that down into the kind of in, into a particular story? Okay, this is the this is the story that I want to tell in this book. Well, in my case. Um... Well, I, I, I was easy mainly because I've been writing that book for the last five years now. <laughs> yeah, because your St. Tommy stuff is all about this kind of thing. That's Pretty much. You know, yeah. this, <laughs> yes, this, this is sort of my wheelhouse. Um, some people have said I've been thrown into the wheelhouse and I built it, but it's like, no, no, no I didn't. <laughs> as long um, as you don't get ground up by the wheel. No, no. <laughs> um, but uh, no, for, for me, it was easy. And in my case, I had already had... I already had a story written down because somebody had been saying, oh, well, we, we want, has anyone talked about uh, truly evil people who are going through a redemption arc and that's why they're good guys? It's like, okay, aside from, thank you, Joss Whedon circa 1999 and David Boreanaz's career, um, it's like, no, I can think of a few examples, but not too, too many. So, I use that and I just happened to have demons getting punched in the face quite a bit. And, um, you know, for, for, again, for me, it was easy. And since we started with the list of people, uh, list of authors, because as soon as Eric said, oh yeah, punching demons or shooting demons, it's like, okay, here's your list. Uh, you know, John, Jaji, uh, Daniel Humphreys, uh, N.R. Lapointe, and of course, Michael, especially once I read his uh, Body and Blood. Yes. Okay, thank you. I keep getting the title wrong. I got it right for once. Yay. <laughs> um, so, no, it, that was fairly easy. And I don't hang out with a lot of people who are into everything is black, everything is gray, especially even demons. It's like, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Mm -mm. Demons are where you, you just say, no, there is black and white morality and demons are not on the side of right. Thank you. Have a nice day. Um, basically, all we need to do is find people who really hated that particular trope. Mm -hmm. And there are more people who use that particular trope than I even want to think about. Mm. And trust me, I've, I would have thrown those books across the room, but they were on my Kindle and I didn't want to destroy it. <laughs> So, so Michael, when you got invited into this, what was your what was your initial reaction? What was your 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 process on coming up with a story to contribute? Um, I was enormously flattered, especially after. Uh, I think the way it happened was Declan had shot me an email and kind of invited me on, and of course, immediately I said yes. Uh, then I actually learned who else was in the book, and I and I was like, whoa, uh, <laughs> hey. Um, me and Nate, it's funny, Nate must have been a later addition because he and I were kind of messaging back and forth like, did you hear John C. Wright's going to be in this? You know, <laughs> We couldn't believe the talent that, that these guys had managed to assemble. And what was 
really uh, great the way this all sort of shook out. Like uh, Declan had referenced like a, a bench and a starting really does kind of shake out that way. There's like five really amazing, well-known authors who, uh, who, who have storied reputations, Dan Humphreys, uh, John Wright, Donkey Lamplighter. But then there's the rest of us guys who have, who are uh, very talented, have great stories in this. And a um, few of these guys are getting their first breaks in this. So this was actually an anthology that really I think is doing a lot of good, but um Sorry to answer the question. Uh, Declan invited me on. Of course, I said yes. I, I had a story that was like almost tailor-made for this. I just had to, uh, once Declan read the first draft of it, I had to add more guns to it, uh, was his recommendation. And then it was perfect. And um, what was actually great about this was, after, so after the story submission part of it came over, I started kind of getting in touch back and forth with Eric, who was the editor. And um, realized that he he kind of needed some extra help and um, laying out the book and like getting the cover. His his, his supremely talented daughter. If you can show the cover really quick again, Jason, uh, if you would. His supremely talented daughter Bria, uh, what was the illustrator for this? And um, she, Eric had shared some of her her work on other stuff that she'd done. And we kind of just gave her the concept and she came back with this. And I don't think she could have nailed this any harder if any of us had tried a hundred times. This was yeah, just it's a fun cover. Per perfect art to capture not just the topic, but the, the tone of the whole thing. And um, but but like the back wrap. Um, the text, the website, the media kit, all that stuff. I said, hey, I, I can do all that stuff and help you out a little bit. And I, I was very happy to. And so that's kind of how all this just sort of started to congeal into uh, what we have. It seems to me that a number of these projects lately, and, and we see this on, on Kickstarter a lot, we see this with a number of anthologies that people are putting together, that it, it, it's very much more collaborative than your traditional, here's the editor, here's the author of all of these different, you know, here's each author of all of these stories, that each author is responsible for his story, and nobody nobody helps anybody out, and, and 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 the model seems to be changing for anthologies. Is that is there a are you guys feeling like there's a shift in that kind of thing? Because with novels, it's going to be you've got an editor, you've got a copy editor, you've got the writer. But with mm. anthologies, now you have an opportunity, like Michael was talking about, where you can bring on some lesser known authors and and mix them in with some more established authors but you've also got this opportunity here for the for the established authors to mentor and advise your 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 newbies i, I, I was about to say your younger authors but some of your younger authors are more more established than than older authors anymore i mean people are jumping into this thing at at all stages of their lives so is there more an opportunity to collaborate back and case, forth? Case in point, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Are there more opportunities? Absolutely. Welcome to the internet. Yeah. Um, and in some case, there is a uh, oft slung around uh, proverb, rising tide lifts all boats. Mm. Uh, funny mm. enough, uh, every time I try to put that on to the test, everyone says, no, no, thanks. We don't need any help, uh, and we're not going to help you. 
Uh, at which point my general response is fine, I'll do it myself and I'll bring other people up with me if I, if I can. Yeah. Um, some, some, at this point, one of my, <laughs> I'm not going to say one of my major motivations is being pissed off, but it helps. <laughs> um, especially when you're trying to move an entire house full of books at the same time, that's a different conversation, but, um, and yeah, is, is it more common? Yes, because there are more of us out there who can find each other easier. We might even find each other even more easy. Um, now that Twitter has is under new management, we'll see exactly how that particular algorithms, how those algorithms turn out. Good point. And um, frankly, yeah, sure, it is getting easier. And I'm kind of surprised. I am not surprised because what else is an anthology but a bunch of guys working together in the first place mm. <laughs> well and it's funny you mentioned twitter uh, something that i've noticed uh over the last few days uh not only am i seeing people on twitter that i haven't seen for a while larry korea being one of them but i'm also seeing people on instagram that i haven't seen in a long while now the two companies are not anywhere near connected they're not the same you know, right. Elon Musk hasn't done anything with Instagram, but the timing of it is such that it's it's happening at the same time. It's like, oh, I haven't seen this person in forever, and mm -hmm. I have to wonder what's going on there because you know, with with Facebook's you know financial woes being what they are, I have to wonder if they're looking over at Twitter, going, you know. That could happen to us. We need to make some adjustments, maybe. But but you're right, Declan. You've got this this opportunity. And and if Twitter is the the public square, and if you have social media that actually starts acting, you know, like they're supposed to, as a platform, you know, Section Two Thirty and all of that, and not a publisher, and they don't they don't choke everybody. There is more of an opportunity to connect and collaborate and, and start having those conversations back and forth. Say, oh, hey, I've got this story and you've got that story and you've got this thing. Let's let's do this thing together and see what happens. Absolutely. And frankly, it's interesting now that we have people who have been hopping on board. Um, we have had people who are hopping on board. Oh, look, indies are so fascinating. Indies <laughs> are on the rise. And it's like... That's nice. Where were you 10 years ago when yeah. we were all, you know, I was working on this 10 years ago. You know, you had Larry and let's say Sad Puppies because there was a lot of indie around that too. Yeah. Uh, and gee, I am so happy that you, Mr. Random Twitter, Twittered ma Maven with a million followers. How very nice. Um, for you to finally hop on board. Uh, I'm not naming any names because there are multiple names who have finally decided, hey, Indy's the place to be. How very nice of you to join us. Yeah. Well, Thank we you see very it, much. We see, it in the, <laughs> we see it in the comic books uh, side of things as well. The comics yeah. industry is going through that where you know, the <clears throat> DC and Marvel titles are not selling as well and you've got people like Sean, Gurdon, uh, Sean Murphy and, and Scott Snyder and and however many others are going to Substack and Zoop and, and all of these uh, these other places for indie publishing and saying, I'm going to make my own thing instead of working on Batman because I can't yeah. own Batman. Yeah. And it there are people like Ethan Van Skyver and, and that crowd who are sitting there going, 
we told you, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, this is where it was going, and you didn't believe us. You called us names, and you, you know, you said we were, you know, undesirables and deplorables and all that other stuff. But it turns out that the model is actually somewhat viable, more than you, ex- more than you wanted it to be, more than you wanted to acknowledge it, and now you're starting to use it yourself. So the irony, mm. the irony is there. It's like you know, it's it's like you know, the difference between a conspiracy and truth is about three months, right? So it's the same <laughs> kind of thing. It's like, oh, you know, you, Indy's not going to be a thing. Well, now here you go. However much time has passed, oh, we're going to go Indy, right? With no acknowledgement at all that they were against it in the first place. And yeah. It's, yeah, it, 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 it can be a frustrating thing, but but at the very least, you know, it's a good time to be in the catbird seat here uh, to to have an established body of work when everybody just starts to wake up to the fact that there's a lot of talent out there, um, especially now with uh, especially in publishing with us. I think there's it's ever ripening the, the distrust and the disdain of traditional publishing, especially in the wake of the Simon Schuster recent court case where it was revealed that like, you know, the entire industry is more or less propped up by half a dozen big writers. Yeah. Um, I, I think as people get, get sick of, of the um, mush that's offered by the big houses, you know, we, we've got more of a chance than ever to get our work out there and seen. I, I have to wonder if the big, the big push, you know, all the, all the, the, the major publishing houses, they're not relying so much on sales anymore as they are which books get a movie adaptation, which books get a TV adaptation. Because I, you know, we have we have our Saturday morning news program, and I have lost count of how many stories we've had over the last couple of years about this new book about to be published. It hasn't even been on shelves yet, and it's already got a movie deal. And the you know comics industry did the same thing. And you know there's a lot of complaints of people who say, well, you're just writing. You should be writing a comic book, not your Netflix pitch. And it seems like a traditional publishing's going through those same those same motions where, you know, I'm not writing a book. I'm writing I'm writing the studio pitch to to get my movie made. And like, your 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 priority is is a little bit off there. I think. Yeah. 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 Now, I, I do not have any numbers on, you know, how many people are trying to make their Netflix pitch out of their traditional publishing novel. My major problem with the trad pub right now is everything is starting to feel so streamlined and generic. It's like, yes, only six people uh, sell any books. We're going to make everybody feel exactly like those six people. Yeah. It's like, no, that's that's not how we, it works because, you know, basic, basic, you know, Idiot's Guide to Getting Published. Do not say, oh, I am the next so-and-so. Well, they already have so-and-so, you know, unless you're the next Robert E. Howard, because, you know, he's at least dead. But, you know, you know, I, I'm, I'm the next Larry Correa. Well, we've got Larry Correa. Why do we need you? <laughs> you know, I'm the next James Patterson. Well, so are the two dozen other people working with James Patterson right now. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing. But, God, I, I don't know why they decided not to take their own advice because everything feels like, oh, look, this is the next 
James Patterson. This is the next John Scalzi. I don't know why you want to be John Scalzi. I can't get through his books. Yeah. Um, John Scalzi's writing is terrible. Mm. Well, no, yeah, I, even even for entry level science fiction, for gateway science fiction, which is what he's even said he is, it's awful. Okay, uh, <laughs> I haven't gotten through enough of his work to say it's yeah, awful. you are yeah. you are missing nothing. <laughs> you are missing so, absolutely nothing. So if we yeah. if we're setting up if we're setting up a scale of awful, we've got John Scalzi. We got to put Chuck Wendig on that on that. Live. Oh, Chuck oh, Wendigo, yeah. Christ. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, he, he, yes, the X-wing weebles wobbles, but they don't fall down yeah. or something along those lines. I, did, didn't, didn't he? He, he said like he, he had no idea what he was doing when he wrote that or something like that. Uh, it's entirely uh, possible. I I I believe it. <laughs> so let me say he had no idea what he was doing. Period. Yeah. We're done. <laughs> let me let me ask this. Um, well, let me. We're gonna we're gonna take a break. When we get back, I want to ask you a question about about the the traditional publishing wanting to repeat and remake the wheel because i think there's a broader problem there uh and i want to get into that when we get back here we're going to take a real quick break we'll be back with more michael gallagher and declan fan joining us here uh we will continue right after this stand by broadcasting from a device built by a teenage genius using leftover parts from an erector set this is sci-fi for me radio it's like okay hold on you've got somebody and all he does is put on some glasses and slicks back his hair and nobody knows who he is nobody recognizes him it's it's it's, it's like that that uh, that scene in, in the green lantern movie where she looks at him and it's like how you know it's like you just put on a mask and you expect me not to recognize you the h2o podcast monday night at eight only on sci-fi for me tv Good morning, Multiverse. Saturday morning at 11, 10 Central, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Just a real quick reminder that uh, we will take money <laughs> if anybody wants to. Uh, not really. I mean, it's it's just one of those things. All right, we are talking with Michael Gallagher, Declan Finn. Declan Fenn and Michael Gallagher, if you want to go alphabetical. And uh, we are discussing the new anthology, Shoot the Devil, from Crucifixion Press. And let me let me ask you this, because we're talking about traditional publishing and this this idea of you know the six or seven authors propping up the entire industry. And we've talked on a number of different programs about how Hollywood learns the wrong lessons from various different successes or failures. And I think traditional publishing and the comics industry, all, all of the entertainment media and the news media to, to extend this, probably learn those, those wrong lessons the same way because they don't want to try anything new. It's almost like all of these industries uh, are, are steeped in fear of risk. And we got Matthew Bologna over on Puck talking about what what problems Lucasfilm is running into right now where they don't they don't have any idea what they're going to do next with the Star Wars movies because everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid to try something. And you get now in you know we've talked about you know remake after remake after remake after remake and reboots and sequels and that kind of thing. Nobody wants to take a risk anymore. 
and your your independent people are the ones who are stepping out and saying, okay, I'm going to go do something new. I mean, you got Eric July making almost $4 million on his new comic book. And, yeah. you know, Eastland makes a, a good point in the chat. At some point, crowdfunding is going to open up to films, short films, feature films. There are going to be people out there. They're going to, somebody's going to be the first and they're going to say, okay, I'm going to go make a movie. Who wants to give me money for it? Oh, definitely. And part of the problem is Hollywood has always been uh, risk adverse and now Trad Pub is going the same way. That's why everything gets remade. And hell, I'm kind of wondering why Lucasfilm was so, not Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy. Let's be fair. It's Kathleen Kennedy. (laughs) We're so quick to just say, okay, we don't have any books to work from. We don't have any media to work from. It's like, (laughs) Hi, lady. There is a metric ton of Star Wars media, books, comic books. And that's just what Timothy Zahn wrote. We won't even go into what uh, Michael Stackpole put together. Well, and a lot of people thought that's that's what we were getting when they announced Patty Jenkins doing Rogue Rogue Squadron. We thought, oh, they're going to take Stackpole's stuff and going to make a movie out of it. And Stackpole was like, I'm fine with that. Mm Mm-hmm. And now it's not happening. It, nobody, nobody knows what's going on. You know, the failure of Wonder Woman 1984, I think, has put the kibosh on anything Patty Jenkins wants to do here for the next four or five years because she's off of it, Cleopatra too. Certainly yeah. has for me. I'll say after that, absolute <laughs> abomination. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I, you have to wonder. I, I, recently, I read that that Star Wars has basically been declared a dead brand. If if there was ever a brand you could have ever imagined in half a decade's time could be running to the ground so far as to be declared the likes of Blockbuster or, uh, you know, yeah, uh, Kmart, Star Wars of all things. One has to wonder if, if Ruination wasn't somehow the end game when one of the first things she did was to take the, the extended universe off the table, right? Um, which uh, Of which two of the more popular books out there are anthologies tales from yeah. java's palace and uh the excellent uh tales of the bounty hunters why not make a vignetted film yeah. get a bunch of directors on i can um, there, there were so see, many things i could have done yeah well i can from one from one point of view i can understand to a point i mean not not to not to defend kathleen kennedy or anything but i can understand the viewpoint of let's start let's start from scratch because again you're if you're dealing with the eu you have this very long complex history in the story universe that a lot of people who are just out there watching the movies are not going to be aware of. They're not going to know about Mara Jade and Talon Card and and uh, uh, Isani Iceheart and the Yuzong Vong and all of this stuff. Yep. And in order to use any of that, you'd have to take the time to explain it. And so there and go, okay, well, here's this and that and the other. And I can, from that standpoint, I can see, okay, we're not going to use that stuff. But to eject it outright completely... And like what you're saying, when when she says there's no, that we can't draw from anything, I have to wonder if people might have misinterpreted that a little bit because she wasn't saying that it didn't exist. 
she was saying we couldn't we can't use it as our as our foundation for telling news stories because i mean honestly how many people are reading those books if they're if they're diehard star wars fans yeah but your regular average everyday john q public they're not reading the books they're not reading the comic books and i think that's one of the problems that disney lucasfilm has because now with everything being all connected and tied in together they're trying to use the, the the novels and the comic books to explain the holes that are in the movies. And if you want to know what's going on over here, you got to read this and you got to do this. And suddenly it becomes homework. And nobody's going to do that. Yeah. So, you know, they've, they've pretty much, you know, put themselves in a hole. Well, the simple solution would have been you start at the beginning, you start with Timothy Zahn's heir to the Empire. And, oh, by the way, you're going to have to recast everyone yeah. because everyone's too bloody old by now. And you go from there. Uh, you know, one of the biggest problems they had was they didn't go far enough away from the original trilogy uh, when they started doing episodes, what? Uh, seven. Seven, eight, nine. So it's like, okay, how many characters from the original, from one, two, and three showed up in four, five, and six, and their answer was, okay, we're going to throw everybody who's still alive into seven, eight, and nine. It's like, you didn't have to do that. You could have aged them out a little bit and say, yes, this is what happened next. Mm -hmm. But had they just gone with something as simple as, again, Heir to the Empire, where it's, yes, we have made all of the successes of uh, you know, Return of the Jedi, and it's what's next? What comes after Return of the Jedi? Because when, yes, you have broken up an entire galactic federation into the, what, 10,000 different systems, all of them run by their own governors. That's where it's like, okay, now we have to bring all these people back together again. Isn't that going to be fun? Right. And Thrawn as one central antagonist, heck, they could have run an entire TV series around him if they wanted to, and apparently they're going to do just that. They're going to do that because uh, they're bringing him back for for Ahsoka, and I think yeah. that I think that John John Favreau and Dave Filoni might be not necessarily the the ideal people to do Star Wars, but they certainly seem to be the best option at the at this point right now. They they, they understand at least, it at least. They understand it. They seem to respect it enough to not be outright insulting. Yeah. Granted, don't ask me anything about Book of Boba Fett. Boba Fett, I don't know anything about it. I think it's a Roberto Rodriguez project, which yeah. Yeah. always made me go, is Antonio Banderas going to be part of this? It's, because it's if not, not, I'm not sure I'm going to like it. It's not I'd, I'd watch that. Yeah, I mean, that would be awesome. Now, so when when you guys are putting together these anthologies, Michael, you you mentioned the the anthologies for Star Wars. Has has there has there been any interest? Have you guys ever talked about? Wouldn't it be Wouldn't it be cool if Wouldn't it be fun if we we took established characters like maybe maybe what what Alan Moore did with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Let's take take characters that are in the public domain, Frankenstein, mm -hmm. Dracula, that set. And create a new anthology of stories that are like what you're doing here in Shoot the Devil? Has anybody well, come up with that? Believe it or not, I was actually uh, approached about that at FenCon over in 
Dallas in, in September, where somebody had suggested putting together an anthology uh, around that premise or around sim a similar premise. And I should probably talk to him before I mention it on the air. Uh, <laughs> Heroes of the public domain. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to tell you, I, I would write I, so many of them are so much more compelling than anything that's offered these days. So in the hands of, of the right author that's going to respect the material, why not? Um, yeah. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was almost a good idea. Like, great idea, but don't team them up like that. Yeah. Um, but, like, yes, I'd, I'd write a story about, uh, you know, Van Helsing or Solomon Kane or um, you name it. I mean, you just need the right author and the right, right sort of editor who can kind of corral all these people. Well, and it seems like the, the pendulum is swinging back just a little bit because we've got, you know, Titan Comics just, just announced the creative team for their new Conan the Barbarian uh, title. We have uh, a new Red Sonia that just wrapped production. They, they've just uh, they've just finished principal photography, so that movie is in the works. We got a Barbarella on the way, uh, and and I'm like, okay, there's all of this stuff. This is all this you know, two fisted action adventure pulp stuff. Mm -hmm. How is it going to play? And I think a lot of that's going to depend on how it's marketed more than anything else because yeah. if they market Red Sonja the same way they did Ghostbusters 2016 it's not gonna, it's not going to fly even if it's <laughs> the best Red Sonja adaptation ever nobody's going to want to go see it if they make it all about the fact that Red Sonja is a woman so well they, they they I think Ghostbusters 2016 has become code for whatever you do don't watch our stuff yeah. um Ocean's 8 they said oh it's just like Ghostbusters 2016 it died <laughs> Um, oh, Charlie's look. Angels reboot a few years ago they literally said that, that men don't come see this movie right and Elizabeth Banks has come out here what about six months ago acknowledging that that was a mistake so so, so may, maybe this like you said work? Hollywood is slow to learn these 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 lessons but I think I think what really kind of threw a bucket of cold water on everybody in that media landscape was Zaslav the Butcher yeah you know, this guy just came in and just started burning away all the dead weight. Get it off the books. We don't want it, you know. And suddenly everyone was looking around starting to realize, wow, there's a lot of stuff here we don't need and or is hurting us. So let's get these damn lampreys off of us. Yeah. Yes, it has been suggested that we are coming to the end of woke infection in media. And I'll, <clears throat> I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Because let's face it, there are. Look how everyone's excited about Henry Cavill. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, and and DC Comics has. I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut in here too no, hard, but DC Comics uh, abruptly ended the the John Kent Superboy. Uh, you know. Yeah. Um, well, it wasn't selling and, anything, and they're changing Superman's slogan back to True Justice and the American Way. I think that somebody is is looking at sales numbers. Mm -hmm. And saying this stuff Not isn't selling, <laughs> we, you know. Well, and and you know, you've got you've got people, and I I remember being surprised when they announced that Jerry Ordway was going to be involved in something. And I'm well, like, I, wait, you're bringing back established talent? These people are going to actually cost a little bit. Are you you're willing to spend the money on people that actually have what it takes to tell these kinds of stories? 
I'm I'm waiting for him to say John Byrne's coming back for something. I don't know that anybody's mm. going to hire John Byrne to come back for anything, but you know that would be that would be pretty big news. I don't know. Well, it, keep it, in mind, um, as somebody pointed out to me, and we can double check the numbers just to be sure. But someone pointed out to me that when CW was acquired by the next by its current company, I forget who it is. They basically didn't buy it. They did. They they got it for free. <laughs> However, what they really did was they assumed the hundred million dollar debt. Yes. Which yes. point somebody has to stop and say, "Excuse me, how do you lose a hundred million dollars on a TV station, a, a, a TV channel?" And the answer is, somebody was. Somebody was playing with the numbers. Well, somebody think, supported shows that didn't have an audience. Yeah, uh, Jesse, Jesse, Bat, Batwoman. Yes, Batwoman. Where I think yeah. the entire audience for Batwoman were poor YouTube reviewers who tortured <laughs> themselves by watching it every week. The irony of that, I mean, yes, ZW was definitely a loss leader if you want to use you know the business term. But I, I think the other the other part of that, you look at something specifically like Bat, Batwoman as a as an example. One of the things that I saw in the discussion of why it kept getting renewed was that the ratings didn't didn't matter so much as the online chatter, the the. The social media engagement and all of that stuff, those metrics were higher and there was much more emphasis placed on that as opposed to how many people are actually watching, which to me is just, you know, you're shooting yourself in the head that way because anybody can be talking about it. Nobody's watching it. Then how, how are you how are you counting that as a success? That doesn't make any sense. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> right. In the immortal words of Dave Chappelle, Twitter isn't real life. Yeah. And even more importantly, the people bitching about it on Twitter don't necessarily see the TV show and more importantly, the ads, because mm -hmm. that's where they theoretically get their money from. Oh, yeah, look, right. we, you, your show gets X amount of eyeballs. We want Y amount of eyeballs on our product. So we're going to give you money and our product will be seen, right? Apparently not. It's like, yeah, I don't know what drugs they were taking, <laughs> but it's, you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid folks. No. It, you know, it doesn't end well. So speaking of speaking of marketing and getting the word out and ads and that sort of thing, what kind of promotion are you are you uh, as a group? What kind of promotion are you able to do, willing to do, wanting to do for Shoot the Devil? I mean, you're doing interviews. There's social media posts and whatnot. How how much of a challenge is it to get the word out with with indie indie publishing these days? Uh, well, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, right now, uh, the only thing we've done is this has been a completely grassroots, word of mouth thing. We we've all been kind of blasting it on our various social medias, of course, um, and uh, ho hoping that with reviews and with podcast appearances that maybe word will spread. Um, the the thing with an anthology is like when I'm in charge of my book, I I can direct where all the money's going to get it in front of eyeballs when, when it's split between 10 people you know um, who who may or may not be willing to to uh 
pitch into something. It, it, it's not so easy to make those kind of decisions. Yeah. But really, this has just been a word of mouth thing. For for it just being that, it it's been doing pretty good numbers from what I understand. Uh, we we got a good review from Critical Blast. We hope there there's a lot more. I've been sending ERCs out to people, um, and and I mean uh, I actually. <clears throat> Uh, just sent out a revised version of the of the back cover that that included a blurb that uh, hopefully will will um, uh, you know will uh, sway some people who are uh, perusing the look inside um, from uh, Damascus Mintzmeyer who um, wrote and I think I'm kind of uh, paraphrasing I don't have it right in front of me but it was like uh, gunfight sword fight psionics there's never a dull moment you know really kind of encapsulates in one sentence what you can pretty much expect from this book. And um, yeah, they're, they're all, uh, there's, uh, as I said, there, there's old established talent, there's new talent. Uh, Nothing drags on for too long because we kind of hard kept people at about 10,000 words or so. And um, it's all imminently readable. It's great stuff. Even Corey Comstock, who uh, this is his first ever story in here. It, it, It is a banger. This is some uh, great fiction in here, and it ranges the gamut from comedy to weird west to uh, basically urban fantasy horror to high fantasy. Um, you can really get something for just about everybody in this. And reading this, uh, reading this, this, uh, this review, it says here: these aren't woebegotten stories wallowing in existentialist misery, nor nihilistic exercises in brutal torture porn excess. This is about reestablishing the genre's endangered good triumphs over evil motif, and to that end, three efforts. Uh, and you talked about some some of the different stories that that really go to illustrate that. And the good triumphs over evil that goes back to that whole superversive movement that you guys are a part of. Richard Palinelli has talked about it here on the show. We've talked to to different people mm-hmm. about that. It how do you? What what measurement tools, what guidelines, if any, are you guys using to make sure that those stories stay in that that tone, or, or does that come naturally? I'd say it varies by the author, uh, but I think everyone more, more or less ha- has a natural sort of gauge on you. You can't venture into hopelessness if if there was one fix the yardstick i'd have to say it's that you can't venture into hopelessness or too bleak there's got there's got to be hope no definitely yeah, what do you think I, I i think part of the problem with the question is um we don't all right we don't know anyone who specializes in bs and frankly a lot of the horror genre is oh well what if the demons are right no no, we don't know anyone who, who peddles in that nonsense, and it's straight nonsense. Let, let's let's keep it clear. Yeah. And everyone calls it superversive. I, I, I just call it good storytelling. And I always wondered, well, why do we need a movement about good storytelling? Isn't that what the market is for? Answer, obviously not. <laughs> uh, especially if the market is being propped up by six guys who they push. And god, really, Oh, God, really? Yeah. That was so satisfying <laughs> when that came out from that court case. 
and and, and which really cancerous about this. Sorry, I don't want to go on a jag here, but like they're propped up by like five guys, and even guys like Brandon Sanderson, they can't treat well enough to keep him from running to Kickstarter and saying, Hey, I've got four books here I want to publish that my publisher won't let me. Yeah. Could you fund them, please? And the guy gets like fourteen million dollars in a day. Yeah, it was that was that was amazing to watch because they can't even keep him happy. They don't even have the sense to do that right. Well, and and when that when all of that information came out, I thought, wait a minute, all of these books that are supposedly bestsellers are you know they're they're moving twelve fifteen copies. I've 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 sold that many of my self published book. I'm doing great, (laughs) you know. I'm I'm fine. Uh, Maybe I should do a sequel then and sell fifteen, and I'll be doing you know I'll be in tall cotton there. There were so many people on Twitter who were like, oh, my God, I feel so much better about my sales figures all of a sudden. I'm, yeah, I'm outselling right. all these uh, <laughs> big trad names, yeah. you know? Uh, Alex has a, a, a good question. <laughs> who are all the superversive people? Uh, I, I don't know if there's a particular group. Uh, you're not all card-carrying members of an organized movement or anything. Uh, but we uh, mentioned no, Richard no. Palinelli. But uh, who who else is in that group that you would ca- categorize as the superversive movement is there well is there a, john Russia? c wright and jaji yeah. lamplighter coined the term so them obviously um russell newquist russell newquist obviously yeah. richard Palinelli, and it's basically the term is for you know inspiring from above instead of subversion which is the exact mm. opposite right right and so basically anybody where you read through the book and you come away feeling better or being better or having learned something the the term i grew up with was simply edifying to build build you up you it has added something to your life as opposed to you know you read some books and i won't mention who uh where you read them and it's like why did i read this and should i slip my wrists now And I'm sure we can all think of a few people who are just like that. Well, are there any authors that you've described as such? If you sit there and go, oh, well, this is this is kind of a superversive story and they've rejected the label. Say, no, 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 no. Don't call me that. I don't don't want to be part of that movement. Is it that kind of thing? Uh, You know, we don't exactly go around labeling people. especially i don't it's like oh look this book's fun um (laughs) and i I just leave it at that uh i would say yeah sure timothy's on almost pretty much all of his books are you know they start out as military sci-fi and then they turn into i won't exactly say lord of the rings but they do become bloody epic um and inspirational but uh no i i I don't go around slapping labels on people I'd put David Weber on that list. Probably. Um, who yes, else? as I've noted, Jason is just a little bit of a fan of David Weber. I am. Just, <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> I have a whole shelf over there. I got I got most most <laughs> of the honor verse on my shelf, yes. Um, well, I had a I had a, a an interesting conversation with David a long time ago about, you know, mixing, you know, the kind of stories that he tells. And, you know, there, there always there always becomes those discussions about how much politics you put in and messaging and that sort of thing. And the superversive stuff, the, the, the kind of stories that you guys are telling, you know, Declan, you talk about making them fun. Yeah. The the corollary to that is let's tell stories that don't preach at our audience 
let's tell stories that don't lecture people. Let's just have a romp. Mm-hmm. Correct. And, and yeah. it and it feels like maybe some of that's coming back as well, possibly. Well, I think it's mostly a matter of the a lot of the a lot of industries have seen exactly what happens when you lecture audiences. Oh, look, you just lost a ton of money. Um, and there are only so many times a movie can be saved because you've slapped a label on it as part of a franchise and it makes a billion dollars. Um, I believe even even the Marvel films have stopped making a billion dollars a movie. Uh, yeah. Thor, Love and Thunder, I believe, was the first one to finally drop out of that particular club. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, heck, even the Doctor Strange 2 is coasting on the success of uh, mm-hmm. the Spider-Man film. Mm-hmm. But um, And then you see at the other end of the pendulum, oh, look, Top Gun Maverick. Uh, were there oh, lectures in yeah. that? No. It made a billion dollars, though. Yeah. And I think it's one of the first Tom Cruise film where, you know, yeah, it made its money back as opposed to all those films in the early aughts and late 90s where it's, yes, it made $100 million. It cost $120 million to make. <laughs> so it, it's good that Tom Cruise has finally bounced back from his stint in, in the Mummy film. Mm. Ugh. Well, and there's and there's talks about Brendan Fraser coming back for a fourth Mummy film in his set. That will be interesting to see uh, because those films were in that fun, let's tell a good story type of thing, and they were extremely. He's not too old to to be like you know involved in the action yet, but they'd have to be careful how they wrote him into that i think yeah they first have to build him back up because yeah. i'm sorry there are no photos i've seen of him lately where he looks like he's in good enough shape to walk a flight of stairs yeah he 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 looks a little rough i mean the guy's been yeah. through a lot he yeah. has he yeah. has but the acclaim that he's been getting of late but people love him right yeah, exactly people love him. and, and yeah. they're and and a lot of people are ready they're just like okay give me mummy four i yeah he they, could they'd he could have to do just, like a short They'd have to do like a Sean Connery. He'd have to be like the Sean Connery to whoever they cast as the Indiana Jones for the yeah, like older yeah. mentor maybe role. Well, uh, I I had read there was there was a story that had been written for a fourth outing that took place down in South America with Aztec culture. Yes, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to be uh, Venezuela, I think. Venezuela and and the son, I think, figured prominently in that. So you could still do that kind of thing where it's mm-hmm. the kid, yeah. And you know maybe they do it better than than Indiana Jones four. <clears throat> One, not hard. Two, um, <laughs> the original plans were supposed to be. Um, Shia Banderas. LaBeouf didn't save this franchise. No, no. Don't 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 get us started. Uh, it was supposed to be uh, Antonio Banderas was supposed to be the mummy villain. Yeah. And th- yeah. And there were a lot of the problems with number three was it was quite clearly the search for more money. Uh, they couldn't get back the original director. Uh, they wanted to bring back Oded Fair, um, Ardeth Bay, and even Arnold Vosloo. But Arnold Vosloo said, um, if Stephen Summers isn't part of this, why am I here? Also, it's in China. Why am I here? Um, Oded Fair said, if 
Arnold Vosloo isn't in this movie. Why is my character in this movie? <laughs> so poof, that, that one, two of them. And for some reason, and I don't know why, they decided, hey, we're going to go from the 1920s and the early 30s, and we're going to skip World War II entirely. Why? <laughs> Not to mention, oh, look, we can't get Rachel Weiss back because she's now won an Academy Award. Uh, so we're going to replace her with Maria Bello, who last time I checked has negative charisma points to the point where, um, how I put this, the last time I checked, uh, bringing her on board to a project is on par with uh, bringing Jennifer Connelly onto the Rocketeer, where every every scene she's in dies. It's like, oh, look, the charisma has sucked out of the room. <laughs> That's a shelved script right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's what that sounds like <clears throat> so what's next for you guys you we've got uh we've got this is the, now is is the kill the uh, shoot the devil is out now right yes it shoot is the devil is out now um we're, we're all michael and i and eric and a few of the others are talking about so how do we do book two it's like yeah really yeah he, he, uh, <laughs> he he's already said he wants to do a volume two and i would be totally down for that Yes, and this time mine can actually have guns in it. Uh, it's like, yeah, we, we started with... Yeah, Mr. Add More Guns is like the only story in the whole thing, or like one of like two stories in the whole book with no guns in it. But I won't spoil it. It's still a good story. It's when I submitted story. it, it was called Punching Demons, so I had a lot of punching, and it was like, wait, we're shooting now? Oops. Uh, like, now you tell me. Um, but then again, guns guns would have figured with, my, with the, the same character, later on i was kind of going for the shadow by the end but there you go that's another conversation um and this guy would definitely go for the insane laughter uh but right now i've got what am i on i'm on book three of five for my vampire sequ se sequel series i've got a space opera i'm working on with tuscany bay they probably want book five sometime time before Hellfreeze is over and I've got uh, a project I'm going to submit to Bay and once I actually write that so I'm going to be a little bit busy oh wait I have to stop moving first I have to actually <laughs> move a house full of people from halfway New York City halfway across the country right halfway yeah. across the country to Dallas or at least Dallas-ish and <sighs> Dallas area yeah and you know if we get there by Christmas my my Christmas present will be, you know, 1911th, or at least that'll be my wife's Christmas present. And then maybe I can get back to writing. <laughs> I've been able to, I haven't even been able to read lately, except for, I don't know if you've ever heard of Giovanni Guareschi's uh, Don Camillo stories, but thankfully they're only like four pages long per story. So I've got that much attention span. So I'm going to be busy for the next five years <laughs> michael what's on the on the books for you i i have uh, sworn to god that i'm not going to let myself get sucked into any more anthologies but we'll see about that but right now um i just turned in a short story for uh fantasy anthology i've never written fantasy before for an anthology that actually nate lapointe another one of the alums from shoot the devil wants to get together uh, that is a banger of a story i uh hope hope that sees the light of day soon and i'm just working on book two i'm just trying my best to plow through book two um and that's all i got 
All right, and let's uh, let's pull up uh, Michael's uh, Twitter account here, Missing Byline, and uh, the website, sevensorrowsbooks.wordpress.com. we got links there in our notes. Declan is also on Twitter, as well as MeWe and some of the other alt-right tech. Uh, and uh, he's got uh, uh, presence on Substack. He's also responsible for Upstream Reviews. Which, when I went to click the link, Declan, you might want to check on this. Twitter says that link might be unsafe. Well, it should go to Substack. So, yeah. If it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what upstream, but I'm wondering if somebody might have flagged it, maybe. But upstream review. I can't imagine watch. who <laughs> or why. Uh, so there is that. So uh, so go check they those out. They love us at File Seven Seventy. Yeah, all of those all of those links are in our notes, so y'all can check those out, and we will definitely have that. And and if and Michael, if you want to send me a, a copy of this, or if somebody wants to send me a copy of this, uh, I'll add it to our pile, and we'll get a review sure. out. And in the meantime, when uh, the next thing comes out, we'll have you back. We'll uh, we'll talk more about uh, about various different things. So. Thanks and of course, if anybody wants to uh, read more about the book, read uh, some author bios or reach out to us via the contact form or view the kick-ass book trailer that some very handsome individual might have put together, they can go to shootthedevil.wordpress.com if they want to know more about the book. All right. And that link is also in our notes. So go check that out. Uh, Declan Finn, Michael Gallagher, thanks very much for being here, gentlemen. Thank you, man. Thank and you. thanks to everybody who was uh, part of this one. A very active chat today. Uh, good to see that as well. We are on our way to 500 episodes, uh, probably about the end of December is when we're going to do that. Coming up tonight on the H2O podcast, Mr. Harvey and I are going to be talking about the finale, Jodie Whittaker's last episode of Doctor Who that aired over the uh, last week. And uh, so we're going to be talking about the power of the doctor tonight, 9, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 central. And uh, we do want you to uh, connect with us on all the different social media platforms and video platforms. Make sure you're connected with us over on Odyssey and Rumble. We're trying to get our Rumble numbers up to 100 so we can start streaming over there. Uh, so join us uh, in the various different places, even the unmentionables. And that's going to do it for us today, folks. Thanks very much for being here. Remember, there are four lights. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. 